This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Brian Souble, Deputy Director and Chief Counsel at the California Department of Motor Vehicles. He joins us to talk about the new California regulations governing autonomous vehicles. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Michelle. You are the Deputy Director and Chief Counsel at the California Department of Motor Vehicles, and you've been instrumental in forming the DMV's new regulations governing autonomous vehicles in California, which will take effect April 2nd. So I want to dig into those regulations with you. Uh, But before we do that, perhaps we can just take a minute to address the very tragic collision that occurred in Arizona recently between an Uber autonomous vehicle and a pedestrian, which led to the pedestrian's death. Um, what were your thoughts when you heard about the incident? Any, anytime you, you hear about any type of uh, a traffic collision or, or an accident that involves a loss of life, it, it's always a, a tragic event. And so um, that's the first. That's the first feeling that you have. It's just, just you know, that concern in your heart for the person that lost their life. Yeah, absolutely. This is. I think it affected a lot of people. It was. It was very, very tragic uh, to hear. And our condolences, you know, to to the families. And exactly. I mean, and and it's the same that you would think about in in any type of an accident where where someone, um, you know, tragically is is dead. Yeah. So has the accident, you know, given your position here in California, has the accident changed your view on on the approach California is taking to AV regulation or made you think there should be some changes to the regulations? Well, you know, our approach always has been from the perspective of, of traffic safety. Um, you know, when the legislature enacted SB 1298 back in 2012 and Governor Brown signed it, it was with the, with the idea that we wanted to come up with a regulatory regime that would encourage the innovation, but at the same time paying close attention to what is of foremost importance, which would be the, the public safety. So I, I think, you know, an incident like this just stresses the importance to us of the work that we've done and the the elements that we've included in our regulations that we will believe that fosters that that sense of public safety. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about Uber's testing uh, here in California to date and uh, what happens next? Yeah, I mean, it, it started with Uber back in about December of 2015. They had introduced uh, uh, several vehicles in San Francisco um, that they were testing. They, they did not have a testing permit from the department at the time. So we, you know, the action that we took was we canceled the registrations of the vehicles and then they moved on to Arizona. Um, and then shortly thereafter, in about February of 2016, they applied for and we issued a permit for them to test here in California. So, so since that time, their testing in California had been in, uh, in compliance with regulations that we adopted back in 2014. Right. So I guess there's going to be an NTSB uh, investigation of the incident in Arizona. Um, if the NTSB find something specific uh, to be the cause of the accident, like, I don't know, the number of LIDARs or position of LIDARs or something specific, do you feel that you have the tools uh, you need here in California to require other manufacturers to implement changes? Well, I I mean, one thing, um, you know, as, as a lawyer in the department, we don't make any conclusions without, like, some concrete evidence. 
And so we're going to have to rely, wait and see what comes out of the NTSB investigation. You know, I sent Uber, uh, one of their representatives, a letter yesterday indicating to them that, that prior to them resuming testing in California, they were going to have to meet with a department. And, and at that time, we'll evaluate whether or not to reissue to them a testing permit. And just as background, they have a permit, and the permits expire at least under the existing regulations annually. So their permit actually expires on, on Sunday or Saturday, I'm sorry. And they had applied for a renewal of the permit, um, but in conversations with us, they indicated that they wanted to withdraw that, that application. So once we got it in our mailroom, we turned around and, and sent it back to them. But it's what we do um, based on any findings is actually going to be dependent upon seeing what those findings are. So we don't necessarily have a position right now. We're just going to have to see what the findings may be. And, and specifically, is it just a problem that's specific to what Uber was doing? Right. Okay. So in California, Uber has not now uh, sought to renew its, its permit. And uh, with respect to the investigation, you're going to wait and see what the NTSB comes up with and then determine how to move forward from there. Right. I mean, initially, you know, and, and Uber did reach out to us, to the to the department right away last Monday morning to advise us of the crash. Mm-hmm. And then in conversations with us through last week had indicated that they had ceased their testing operations in, in, in Phoenix, in San Francisco, in Pittsburgh and in Toronto, and that they were not going to resume it until, um, you know, some findings or the results of the investigations after that, you know, before that all happened, they had already initiated the process for, for renewing their permit. It was just one of those things that's crossing in the mail. Right. So, so last week when we were confirming that they had stopped testing, they indicated that they would withdraw their, their application. So we just sent it back to them nice. with the caveat that, of course, when they want to resume testing, they're going to have to reapply for a permit and we'll, we'll evaluate the issues at that time. Right. Okay. Um, so how many companies are currently testing, uh, autonomous vehicles with a human driver, uh, in California? We are up to 52 companies, um, uh, that are permit holders and they would include, you know, what you can, would consider an OEM or an original equipment manufacturer companies like Volkswagen group, Mm -hmm. Mercedes Benz, GM, BMW, Honda, Ford, uh, Toyota, uh, Subaru, and then uh, uh, quite a few of them um, are like the, the, the big tech companies that you've heard of, Apple, um, Waymo, uh, NVIDIA, and, and we also have um, tier one um, auto suppliers like Delphi, um, Continental, Samsung, and then a lot of what we would consider um, startups, you know, companies like uh, um, uh, Drive AI or Zooks, um, um, Telenav, um, and a lot of companies that are, are just maybe probably just developing some form of a system that would be included as equipment in other in the vehicles of other manufacturers. Right. So are, are there... Any other companies that have indicated to you that they no longer plan to test in California? No, not to us, uh, not to the department specifically. Um, so the only thing I know about that is the, is the reports that I've read in, in the media. With some people perhaps suspending their, their testing for, for a while. Yes. Right. Okay. And for the companies that currently have a permit kind of under the existing regulations, uh, do those companies need to reapply under the new regulations in order to keep continue testing with a human driver in the car? No, they're, they're, the current permit would be good until it expires. Mm-hmm. But when they come to renew, they're going to have to apply under the new regulations there's not a lot of different um, requirements on them to, you know, when they come to reapply, 
Um, there's a different charge um, <laughs> because the department did costing, and, and of course the program was supposed to support itself. Right. And so there's a dis- there's going to be a different cost for them to apply. Right. All right. Well, let's let's talk about these uh, the new regulations. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the California legislature passed a bill back in 2012 that directed the DMV to to issue regulations governing autonomous vehicles. Can you tell us a little bit about the six year process that's ensued since then, and the work the DMV has done to sort of draft and issue these regulations? Sure. We, um, you know, we started on the road again, you know, first with uh, doing analysis of the statute when it passed, but we started off with holding public workshops to get input about what should be in the, in the regulations. And so we held several of them in in 2013. Um, And at that time we decided that we should, we should basically divide the task and, and we divided it at that time on three lines. First would be, what would the regulations be for testing vehicles? Um, Second would be, what would be the regulations for deployment, which would be like the public use of vehicles outside of testing? And then what would regulations be for what we would call commercial uh, vehicles? And at the time, we were thinking of, you know, like your typical semi-truck with with trailers and and all of those types of uses. Mm -hmm. And so our first focus was on cars. And, and that first focus was on the testing of cars. And so the process is what would we require um, for a company to co- show us to, in order to test? And, and some of the elements for that were already listed in, uh, in the statute um, that was enacted by the legislature back in 2012. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the history of how we got there. And with that, we made it a very public process of, of not only holding the hearings that are required to adopt a regulation, but we held a lot of workshops to get input on on the drafting process as we were going along. Great. And um, so those were the the initial regs that you enacted in in 2014 that are are still uh, in effect today. And then uh, you did this revision that's going to come into effect April Second, and one of the the big changes there is it it kind of takes it beyond testing with a driver in the car and adds these two other types of permits. Um, why did why did you decide now that this is sort of the right time to move forward? Was it just based on developments in the technology, or? Well, part of it was the process. the The statute that we were dealing with required the department to promulgate regulations for for testing and then public operation by January 1 of 2015. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty on target with the testing part. You know, we had it, we, they were approved in May of 2014. And because of the requirement in the statute, they didn't become effective for an additional 120 days. So that meant we started accepting applications in mid-September of 2014. And then at that point, we started working on the deployment regs. And so why now? It's just this part of the process, this public process that we went through to get to the point of, you know, basically meeting the statutory mandate to adopt the regulations. And so um, we worked pretty hard over the last couple of years, even getting input from, from entities like NHTSA mm-hmm. um, and following what was happening on a federal level. And so it was just the timing of, of, you know, having gone through the regulatory process and the timelines with it. That's why we're here now. So starting with the the permit for testing of AVs with a human driver, um, mm-hmm. let's say you're a company that, that wants to uh, apply for that kind of permit. Uh, what are some of the requirements that California has uh, to get that first permit to test with a human safety driver? Well, first, you know, the, the, the definition of what a manufacturer is, it could be a company that builds a, a vehicle with autonomous technology, or as you see with some of the companies that have a permit from us, there are anyone that adds autonomous technology to an existing vehicle. So what that company first needs to do is probably the biggest hurdle is making sure that they have evidence of $5 million in insurance, which is required by statute. Then from there, um, they have to make sure that, that they have employees or, 
or designees of their company that can sit in the driver's seat and be capable of taking control of the vehicle. Um, and with that, we, we spiked off and started thinking about what uh, additional requirements would be. So things like the, the, the driver in the driver's seat, um, that driver has to be what we in California would consider a good driver, meaning they have a clean driving record. No, no more than one point in the last three years. Uh, no, no at-fault accidents in the last three years. No DUI convictions in the last 10 years. Um, the company has to have a training program for those drivers, and they have to give us an outline of what that training program would be. They have to enroll their drivers in something we call the, the pull notice program, which is a statutory program when whenever you have someone that drives for you, for you, an employee, you enroll that employee within our program and you receive, you employer receive notifications when they have traffic violations. So that allows employers to take bad drivers off of their, off of their fleet. Um, the, the, um, uh, that's basically it. I mean, there, 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 you have to identify what vehicles, um, you're, you're going to be testing. Um, you get a permit for the driver. You get a permit for you as a manufacturer. You get a permit for the vehicles, which have to be in them. And then we mark the, um, the, the titles of those vehicles because we don't want to see a test vehicle winding up in a used car lot, so to speak, <laughs> because we don't know what happens to a vehicle when you take this technology out of them. So, so, those, so, so when you're finished with it, there's some restrictions on what you can do with the vehicles. And that's, that's the basic parameters for driving, for testing with a driver in the vehicle. And then uh, on top of that, there's also uh, kind of a, a safety requirement, right, that, that you have to, I think it says, a, a manufacturer shall not test an AV unless the manufacturer has tested the vehicle under controlled conditions that simulate as closely as practicable each operational design domain and reasonably determine that it's safe? Is that sort of the that's basic correct. And That's correct. And we don't specify what that has to be. I mean, you, you can, it can be a combination of things, whether you've done track testing, mm -hmm. including with, with simulations and mathematical modeling. But before you actually put it on the street, you need to certify to us that, you've, that you as a manufacturer have done sufficient other testing that you can certify you believe it's safe to now start testing those vehicles on, on the public streets. And then, you know, there's a reference to um, the operational design domains. For each operational design domain, you have to kind of make this certification about safety. Um, can you give us some examples of what you mean by operational design domain? It's, it's geographic area, but also uh, other types of conditions, right? Yeah, I mean, if you think of the operational design domain, it's it's when and where and under what conditions you've designed this vehicle to be able to operate autonomously. So it can include things light, like lighting, mm -hmm. uh, night versus day, um, weather conditions. You know, can it can it operate when it's raining? Can it operate in fog? Um, speed restrictions. Is it only designed to operate on streets with certain speed limits? Um, things like that. So when you talk, think about the operational design domain, it's all of the physical environment in which you've designed the vehicle to, to operate. Um, and the one thing that we, as, as we start getting towards the driverless testing and towards deployment is we want to make sure that, that the vehicle is incapable of operating outside of where it's been designed to operate and incapable of operating in autonomous mode. You know, two other kind of important safety elements that we added to our regulations um, for, for testing with a, without a driver was companies have to report to us when, they're, when the vehicles are involved in an accident, and that would be any type of a, a accident or collision. And on an annual basis, companies have to report to us when the vehicles disengage. And you think of a disengagement as when the autonomous technology had to be deactivated, either by the vehicle itself or the safety driver, for whatever reason. You're not like the planned deactivation, you know, the driver stopping for lunch, but the things like the vehicle approached a construction zone and couldn't operate, and so it had to deactivate. 
or or the driver felt that there was some conditioning happening on the road and 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 felt that it was for safety reasons it had to deactivate. So those two are uh, important elements of our testing regime that we get. Okay, I'll I'll come back to disengagements in a second, but just to finish up on on the operational design domain, so I understand. So if a manufacturer wants to test an AV at night or in the rain, then they specifically have to have reasonably determined that it's safe to operate that vehicle at night or in the rain by doing some sort of testing in those specific conditions prior to bringing it to you for a permit to put it on the public roads? That's correct. Okay. Um, One question there, you know, some people might ask, well, why doesn't the government make the manufacturers prove that the AVs are safe in these various operational design domains rather than kind of just accepting that their representation is true? Can you tell us some of the things that California thought about when it considered whether to require some sort of third party or, or government testing of the safety of AVs? That was a big part of the workshops that we did um, in, in, in enacting and, and coming up with these regulations. You know, we started that discussion really early. We know that in uh, Europe, for example, they have what's called type approval, where there's a third party that, that certifies vehicles meet certain standards. That's just not a, a standard that's here in the United States under, you know, NHTSA's authority. NHTSA sets federal motor vehicle safety standards. Mm-hmm. And the system in the United States is that manufacturers certify that their vehicles meet those standards. And so, so with us, as the Department of Motor Vehicles, really great at licensing drivers and registering vehicles and regulating, you know, the auto industry, um, that's a whole new world for us. And so we um, use the same system that has traditionally been used in the United States, which is that, that self-certification model. All right. Um, so you mentioned uh, the requirements that we have in California here for autonomous vehicle test drivers and licensing, et cetera. Um, I, I know there's been some discussion after the Arizona collision about uh, – you know, how how attentive these drivers may be. Is there anything in California that governs kind of how many hours a day a test driver can work or be on a shift or anything that addresses that? I, not specifically in our regulations, so that would be whatever standards exist in employment law mm-hmm. about how, how long you could have someone, you know, operating something like that. But it's not something that we have addressed in our regulations. The things that we've addressed in the regulations are basic, the basic requirements that they have to have a background as being a good driver. Right. And then the training program that the exactly have to go through. Yeah. Yeah. But, but our regulations, you know, manufacturers aren't exempt from any other requirements that the law may have on them as an employer. So, um, I think the new permits now that you're going to issue are going to be good for two years instead of one year. Is that right? That's correct. And um, if at any time during those two years the DMV does have a concern about the safety of particular vehicles, what are your options? We can't, I mean, we can take an action on a permit just as if there's a problem with a driver once we've licensed them. You know, we can take an action to suspend or revoke um, their permit. Mm-hmm. And, and that could be for reasons ranging from the fact that they no longer have $5 million in insurance, um, their, their vehicles aren't complying with the vehicle code, um, and even down to the, if we, if we have a reason to believe that, that for safety reasons the permit needs to be suspended or revoked, we have the authority to do that under our regulations. Okay. All right. So moving on to the permit uh, for testing a vehicle without a driver in it, Um, have any companies submitted an application yet to test without a human driver? Um, As of 20 minutes ago, (laughs) 
Um, I didn't have any information that anyone had. Okay. Um, our regulations, which were approved back on February 26, mm-hmm. uh, become effective on, on April 1st. And under a change in the law last year, we were required to issue a notice to companies um, that the regulations had been approved. And so we did that on March 2nd. So, so actually, and then, and then that requires, that specifies that we cannot approve an application for that 30 day period. So the first time we can approve an application is April 2nd. Um, and so if we get one, it'll probably be in the next, in the next few days. But as of, you know, like I said, 20 minutes ago, I had not, I didn't have any notification that we had received one. All right. And how long will that application process take? It's it's going to depend. I mean, under the regulations, we have to notify a company uh, within 10 days of receipt of the application that they've submitted everything that they have to submit. And then after that, it's it's a review period of all of the elements that are required. So if you're going to do um, testing without a driver, you have to have things like a law enforcement interaction plan, which tells law enforcement how to act, you know, how to interact with those vehicles. Um, you have to have provided some notification to the local jurisdiction about when and where and uh, what times of the day you will be testing in that local jurisdiction. So we'll, you'll have to have that documentation in addition to the type of documentation that you have to have for testing with a driver, which would be, you know, uh, um, the, the five million dollars of insurance um, uh, you have a remote operator who's been trained in how to how to operate the vehicle and how to interact with law enforcement. So those things like that. So it will take some time after even after we say well, you've, you've you've turned in everything you need for an application, we still have to review it. Right, right. All right. Let's let's talk in more detail about some of these requirements. You you mentioned um, a few things, but maybe we can start with kind of the safety representations. Um, for this permit, do manufacturers still have to make the same safety representations we talked about earlier about having tested the car under controlled conditions that simulate the the operational design domain? That's correct. Okay. And the manufacturer has to inform the DMV of what the operational design domains will be Yes, they, we have to have a description. We have to have a description of the operational design domain. Okay, so they're going to say, "Here's our our car, fleet of cars, and they're going to operate within you know downtown San Francisco, and uh, you know they they don't operate in the snow, but they operate in the rain, or some description of kind of what the parameters are." That's correct. Okay, and then you know th- these are cars that aren't going to have anybody in them, um, what assurance does the DMV get about the car's ability to actually drive itself uh, without a human? Um, well, there's, there's a couple of, of things. One, no matter what, the, the vehicle has to comply with federal motor vehicle safety standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you think of it's a vehicle, for example, if someone tries to put a vehicle on the street that doesn't have the conventional manual controls, they're also going to have to certify to the department that that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has approved um, that vehicle being on the street or that that vehicle fits within an exemption from the federal motor vehicle safety standards that are provided under federal law. Yeah. So that's another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other safety component that we've had in it, that if you've got a vehicle that doesn't have anyone in it, if you're taking passengers, the passenger, first of all, can't be charged a fare while you're doing the testing, mm-hmm. but you've got to have some way of communicating with that passenger. We call it a, a, a communication link. We haven't specified what that link has to be, but you have to have some way of communicating with the passenger, and that's where we get the concept of a remote operator. Right. I'll get to that in one one minute. Um, is there? I, I guess I was thinking about... Um, the autonomous nature of the car um there's a representation that has to be made that it's um capable of operating without a driver that it's a level four or level five car is is that right 
That's correct. And, and that's more of, of uh, to avoid confusion to the public. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're going to say that you're operating a vehicle that does not require a driver, then that means you're going to have to certify to us that it is a vehicle that meets the um, SAE International's um, um, taxonomy definition of a level four or a level five vehicle. Okay. So there's been some discussion in the media um, about the use of teleoperation where sort of a human using some video game type controllers can drive a car remotely kind of over the internet. And I was wondering if you could clarify, does a car need to qualify as a level four or level five autonomous vehicle on its own or could it not be autonomous, but just having a teleoperator uh, drive it remotely? See, that, that goes back to the definition of what is an autonomous vehicle. And when you look at the definition of, of what is autonomous vehicle that's in statute, it's a vehicle that is equipped with the technology that, that doesn't require the active physical control or monitoring of, of a person. So when you start talking about things like someone operating a vehicle um, remotely with a joystick, you, you really have to start focusing on what is the definition of an autonomous vehicle. Is that vehicle equipped with technology that allows it to drive without the active physical control or monitoring of a, of a human operator? Okay, so to, to qualify for a permit to test without a human driver in the car, the car has to be level four or level five. Um, That's correct. Okay. So when is it permissible in California to use teleoperations to drive an AV without a driver in the car? We haven't focused on that. I mean, we have the concept that we talked about of a remote operator, we allow the flexibility that the remote operator, if there's some kind of a failure of the technology or some emergency situation, that would be able to put the car in a mode that, that gets it, you know, like puts it in a minimal risk condition, gets it to a safe place where it can be off the roadway. Um, but we haven't made any, you know, we, we're not specifying how that has to be done. Just the manufacturer may make their vehicles capable of getting into a minimal risk condition. Right. I I saw that in the definition of remote operator. I think it says a remote operator may also have the ability to perform the dynamic driving task or right. cause the vehicle to achieve a minimal risk condition. So just to be yeah. clear, um, it, it, the rem- a remote operator may be able to drive the car, but it's not required, right, under this? That's correct. Okay. So, and, and the thought behind that is if you've got a vehicle that is experiencing some problem and, and it, can, it can be a traffic hazard, so there has to be some, you know, figure out a way to get it out of that traffic hazard situation, whether you put it in a mode that brings it to a minimal risk condition or you somehow, through the remote operator, maneuver the vehicle to get out. And that could be as simple as giving it a new route to take. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there's been some confusion in the media about your remote operator rule and kind of what's required. Um, so you're, you're not requiring some sort of a backup driver who can literally steer or control the car in real time if something goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, and that's a function of probably not everybody's technology is identical. Mm-hmm. And, and there are all kinds of different business models as to how people are going about deploying the vehicles. And so it's to give them the flexibility to do what's best um, with the technology that they're developing. So you're not envisioning a remote operator as someone who, you know, jumps in at the last second and avoids an accident like the one in Arizona? Um, no, our concept of the remote operator was if there's some, some type of problem that the vehicle is experiencing where the autonomous technology is, is not, not operating, 
um, that the vehicle has to be capable of coming to a stop, and that's a requirement in the statute. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got a vehicle that doesn't have control, how would that happen? And so our recognition is to give manufacturers the flexibility of having a remote operator who would be capable of of getting the vehicle to to come to that stop safely. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So companies could use some sort of teleoperation to... Uh, to help the car if it gets stuck or, or get it to a, a certain uh, minimal risk state uh, if they want to. Right. And, 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 and again, that's, that's in recognition that for deployment, one of the certifications that a manufacturer has to give us is that if there's a, if there's a failure of the autonomous technology, the system either has to cede control back to the driver well, if you're in a level 405 vehicle, that means there probably isn't a driver, then, then the vehicle has to be capable of coming to a stop. And so, you know, our recognition is that that can be facilitated by having a remote operator. The other function of the remote operator is to, to have someone that can communicate with law enforcement and can communicate with passengers that may be in a vehicle. Right. So I, I think there's, there's a couple of different concepts there, which is why maybe it's uh, a little bit confusing. Um, so I think we've covered kind of the remote operator piece. And um, l- let's talk about this communication link that you're referring to about kind of communicating. The, the rule seems to require uh, a, way, a two-way communication with any passengers that are in the car and also a communication link in the sense of being able to get information on the vehicle's location and status. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I know you were trying to give some flexibility here. So the rule doesn't say like what kind of two-way communication would be required. Could that be like texting or audio? Is there any uh, rule there as to wh- how that communication occurs? No, we've only specified that there has to be some way of communicating with the passengers of the vehicle or the occupants of the vehicle and with law enforcement or first responders as necessary. So that leaves the manufacturer flexibility, you know, whether it's through your ride sharing app that you can communicate with the person through a smartphone or whether you have a system like, like, I don't know, like GM's OnStar, where there's, you know, a, a, a way to communicate directly with the person in the car through, you know, the, the sound system of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've left that to the, man, we, we left that to the flexibility of what a manufacturer may want to implement. Right. And then um, the requirement that the remote operator kind of be, constantly monitoring uh, the vehicles and be able to know the vehicle's location and status. What do you mean by status there? Like what, what exactly does the remote operator have to know about the car? Well, is it functioning properly? I mean, is it, is it, you know, like, uh, um, are there any issues with it? Does it have a flat tire? Um, Where is it? Is it, is it stuck in traffic? Um, um, how many are, are there passengers inside the vehicle? Is it on the way to pick someone up? Is it returning? You know, where is it located? And you would think that it, anyone that is possibly deploying a fleet of of driverless vehicles are going to want to know where their vehicles are and right. and how their vehicles are operating. And so that's that's the concept of the remote operator. And how many different cars do you think one remote operator can be monitoring? Do, do you have a, a number in mind of sort of how uh, manufacturers are supposed to monitor the, the fleet? We, we have not specified that. Okay. Great. Now, you mentioned earlier the disengagement reporting. This is one way that California is different from, from many other states. Um, can you tell us? you know, why California decided to implement this reporting? I guess it's been in existence uh, with the 2014 regs and then perhaps just, you know, how it's changing now in in the new version of the rules. Um, If you, if you, you know, take a time warp back to about 2013, 
when NHTSA put out their first statement, it, it, it talked about how states do um, a great job of staying in their lanes and, and registering vehicles and licensing drivers, but also indicated that if if you start coming up with regulations or statutes that deal with it, one of the things that you may want to know is data about things like disengagements. And so that, you know, that planted kind of the seed in our mind. We had heard in academic circles about how data about how the cars disengage would be important data to get. Um, and it also would inform us about the readiness when we got ready um, to start allowing deployment. If you've had issues that cause disengagements throughout your testing, would it make sense to know whether those issues had been addressed before you allow um, a vehicle to deploy? So, for example, if you reported us to us in 2015 that the sensors on your car or the, the cameras on your car that, that see the, the traffic signals can't see them when there's sun reflecting off of them, well, wouldn't you want to know before you allow the vehicles to deploy whether or not the company has done something to, to address that issue? And so that's kind of the, the concept we had with respect to disengagement reports. You know, there's been some criticism of the use of disengagement metrics, you know, concern about whether disengagements are being reported differently by different companies, whether the metrics themselves are a valid indicator of safety, and whether it creates the wrong incentives for companies that are testing, um, either to not make left-hand turns or to uh, keep the driver in control as long as uh, the car in control uh, as long as possible. Can you tell us some of your thoughts in, in response to those criticisms, maybe starting with this criticism about kind of what causes constitutes a disengagement and the, the apples to oranges comparisons that sometimes uh, may result? I think, you know, for us, the, the issue with respect to the disengagements is I'm not going to, I'm not necessarily comparing the apples to oranges. I want to know what caused problems with the technology that you're developing and planning to put on the streets. And I want to be able to look at those disengagement reports in the future when you um, come to deploy um, or come to start trying to do with the driver list and say, have you addressed these issues that occurred in your disengagement reports? Um, that, that was our purpose for, for asking for disengagement reports, and that's how we plan on using them. So you're looking more at a single company and their record over time more than kind of comparing companies against each other in, in the apples, what might, might end up being apples and oranges. Um, how do you feel? Yeah, about, we like comparing apples to apples. Right. <laughs> how do you feel about... Or, or I'm sorry, we like comparing strawberries to strawberries because I don't <laughs> want to mention the name of one of our, our <laughs> permit holders. Exactly. Um, and so... Do you feel like the disengagement metrics are an indicator of safety um, that, you know, let's say comparing one company over a number of years, if they have fewer disengagements, do you believe that that indicates that they're getting safer over time? I couldn't say that because it, it, it also you have to look at road miles traveled. Um, um, you know, did the company actually do a lot of testing on the streets? What if they were doing a lot of their testing outside of the realm of our regulations? So, for example, they did a lot of track testing or they used, um, you know, someplace like, like Michigan's M-City or, or the Gomentum Station in Contra Costa County and did a lot of testing under, under simulated, like, real-world conditions such that we wouldn't have received a disengagement report. So, so that's why I'm thinking that the disengagement reports have to be looked at with the specific eye of what this company did that, that has applied to us and, and what are their documents showing us. So I, I, you know, when you talk about are you using it as a, as a way of gauging whether or not the vehicles are safe, I think you have to keep in mind what the purpose of, of what we want to know from those reports. And that's like the example that I used. If you've told us for three years in a row that your vehicles can't see stoplights, I, I want to know um, what, what are you doing to address that issue um, as you get ready to deploy the vehicles. Right. So if that makes it safer, then yes, the disengagement reports serve that safety purpose. It, it seems like it's a little more nuanced analysis in the way that, that you guys are using those than, than the way sometimes it gets talked about in the press. 
Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the talk in the press is comparing what company A may do that has a fleet of uh, 40 vehicles on the street and is doing a ton of miles and and has been doing this for 10 years and, and now is at the point where their disengagements occur X frequency versus another company that has three vehicles that drove less miles and their, their disengagement seemed to be coming more often. We're not doing that type of a comparison. Right. What about the incentives? Uh, you know, the disengagement reporting overall has certain incentives inherent in it. Um, you know, there's been the criticism that companies might be telling drivers not to intervene if at all possible and that that would lead to riskier driving. Are you concerned about that in California? Well, I, I guess the issue is why, why would you as a company put yourself at that risk? Um, and and it, it would not seem to make sense to tell your drivers to behave in a way that's not safe. Right. Okay. Um, so let, let's move to deployment permits. You mentioned earlier, you know, there kind of comes a time when uh, companies are going to be ready for deployment, and that includes uh, the time when they start uh, charging a fee, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Um what are, you know, we've talked about some of the safety representations that manufacturers need to make when they're testing. I think for deployment, there's a certification that the manufacturer has conducted certain, you know, test and validation methods and is, you know, they're satisfied on that basis that the vehicles are safe. Um, do you have something particular in mind when you talk about kind of this certification about test and validation methods? Uh, does it include road testing, simulation? Are there any specifics around that in terms of, of what you're looking to see? All, all of those things. You know, what have you done to assure yourself that, or, you know, just think of, think of the concept. You're, you're the folks that have to go to the CEO of the company and say, hey, we're going to put you on the line. We're ready to start deploying these vehicles out on the road. Um, and we've done all of these things. Are we ready to go? And, and what have you done to assure yourself that the vehicles are now safe to go out on the road, whether that be in addition to on-the-road real-world testing, simulation and track testing and things like that? You have to have conducted sufficient testing to assure yourself to make that certification to us that the vehicles are safe and, and ready to be deployed. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. Um, you know, I interviewed a, a professor on, on safety uh, a little while ago, and it, it's kind of interesting as to how companies are going to get to a level of comfort, you know, with the use of algorithms and and these cars, you know, like what what does it take to feel that you've done enough testing and validation to know that your car is safe? So I think that's an interesting question. Um, obviously, you know, the rules don't really uh, either at the federal or the state level require any specific uh, standard for safety. Um, but it seems like in California, you're at least asking for this certification. Correct. And, and again, following along the lines of, you know, traditionally the way um, uh, vehicles are regulated in the United States, it's based on a manufacturer certifying um, to a standard. Um, the, the unfortunate thing with autonomous vehicles is on a federal level, we don't have standards. And so we have to rely on, on you know, manufacturers having conducted what they believe sufficient testing to make that certification. Right. The rule also requires that the manufacturer submit a, a summary of autonomous vehicle testing, and uh, they have to describe certain information about the testing that they've done, the locations, number of miles, number of collisions, things of that nature. Um, are you going to, uh, in reviewing these summaries, apply substantive judgment as to what is good enough, like certain number of collisions or a certain number of miles driven? Is there, is there a rule of thumb as to how you're going to review these? Um, not necessarily. I mean, the, the, the one issue is when you ask for that type of information is, yes, you're certifying to something, but we are actually asking for some 
some evidence that backs up that certification. And I think that, that's the point of asking for things like that. It's just, you know, do we have some metrics to look at to, to basically verify the certification that you're making to us? Right. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, one of uh, the requirements for deployment is also uh, going to be that, that the autonomous vehicle is not able to operate in autonomous mode outside of the operational design domain that it's specified it's going to operate in. Um, so that's, you know, a, a different requirement once uh, folks get to deployment. Um, can you explain kind of how that works? The car sort of physically, you know, can't operate in autonomous mode if it goes outside the ODD, or how, how does that play out? That's, that's exactly what we were thinking of. And, you know, as we've experienced the technology, the first vehicles that we rode in, for example, if they were highway drivers and, and uh, the driver got a warning that the system was shutting down when, when, it, when you when it approached an exit. Um, and then also out of concern is that as we see over-reliance on, on systems that provide driver assistance, we didn't want to see um, things, bad things that happen because people are over-relying on something that it can't do. So if, you, if a manufacturer is going to tell us the operational design domain is, say, for example, the financial district of San Francisco, then that means it can't get on Highway 101 and try and drive to the airport because it's incapable of doing it. And we don't want someone to try and turn the vehicle on and make it do something that it was not designed to do, because then that raises your, your safety concerns. Right. Um, and so, so our concept was is that you've got to cert certify to us that the vehicle is incapable of operating outside of your operational design domain. And then there's some reference to commonly occurring or restricted conditions such as snow, fog, uh, black ice, where the vehicle may not be able to operate reliably. W what are you asking people to identify about the vehicles for those conditions? Any, anything about your car um, that you know are conditions under which it, it can't operate. So you've got a level four car. If it can't operate in the fog, you know, identify that. If it, if it can't operate, if the sensors can't operate in the rain, identify that. If the sensors can't operate because they're dirty, identify that. Um, so it's anything, any of that range of things where you know that your vehicle is incapable, these commonly occurring restrictions can't operate in a, in a construction zone can't operate when the traffic is controlled by a, a, um, um, a person giving traffic signals. We want you to identify those restrictions and, and also certify that it's incapable of operating under those conditions. Or that there's a, a mechanism to sort of disengage out of autonomous mode and, and get to a safe state. Um, That's correct. Yeah. So uh, if, the, if the car can't operate in the rain, um, then the company could say we're going to use a, a remote operator or we're going to automatically switch the car into uh, kind of a minimal risk condition or something of that nature? That's correct. Okay. Um, I think a couple of other safety features that we've added to that, of, of course, with anything, because we're talking about the safe operation of the vehicle, a manufacturer has to certify that the vehicles are, are capable of responding to roadway conditions in compliance with, with you know, state and local law. Mm -hmm. um, and since, you know, the laws change, uh, you know, there are new requirements almost on an annual basis that you will provide a mechanism for updates to that, right. um, that a manufacturer will provide a mechanism for updates to things like mapping. You know, it's interesting. Years ago, we, my wife and I, we bought a car with, with a navigation system, and it was based <laughs> on a CD-ROM. And we live, here, we live here in Sacramento where there are suburbs that sprout overnight, and there are many areas that we drive to now that our, our navigation screen is completely blank, right? And so, so we want to make sure if your car is dependent on mapping, you at least provide those those uh, a mechanism for the updates to that. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about data and privacy. Um, when the the incident happened recently in Arizona, um, 
the Tempe Police Department seemed to get the videos pretty quickly and actually released them publicly. Uh, it wasn't clear whether they had access to other data. Um, but do you have any thoughts on how that would be handled in California after an accident? Well, um, the, the, the legislation that was enacted requires that vehicles have a separate mechanism to, control, to record what the autonomous technology was doing at the 30 seconds prior to a collision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has, to start, it has to have a way of capturing that data, um, and it has to be um, retrievable um, after you know, an accident. Um, there are already data privacy requirements in California law, mm-hmm. and so there are specific settings under which someone can get access to to what the data is from uh, an event data recorder. Um, and so we would envision that law enforcement, whether it's through uh, some type of a, uh, a process, whether it's a warrant or something like that, would be able to get access to data that the sensors were collecting prior to a collision. Okay. So uh, the autonomous technology data recorder that you mentioned with the the 30 seconds of recording, that's um, kind of a a requirement that's specific here in California that's different from EDRs or other kind of black box recording devices that other cars elsewhere might have. Is Is that right? I, I, I couldn't say that. I, I, what I can say is that there's a specific provision in the vehicle code says that they, the, the autonomous vehicle has a separate mechanism in addition to and separate from any other mechanism required by law to capture and, and store autonomous um, technology sensor data for at least 30 seconds before a collision. Right. It's kind of interesting because, you know, in the Arizona accident, the police department released not only the exterior video, but also the interior video showing the safety driver. Um, Is there any requirement of an interior video camera in California? Um, No. I mean, our, our only requirement with respect to the collection of data is that provision that's in the law, that it has to be able to capture that, 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 um, that technology sensor data for the 30 seconds prior to a collision. So with respect to uh, information privacy rules, uh, you do have uh, some rules in the, uh, in the new regs about um, the disclosures that manufacturers will have to make uh, to uh, individuals about personal information that may be collected uh, when the AV is operating. You know, there's kind of a lot of focus on consumer data privacy right now. Um, So it seems like um, personal information in the rules is defined as information that the autonomous vehicle collects that's not necessary for the safe operation of the vehicle and that is linked to either the vehicle's owner or the passengers using the vehicle. Um, what was the discussion uh, that you guys had in coming up with this rule around h- how you're going to manage consumer data here? Well, you know, one thing we, as an agency that collects a lot of uh, personal identifier information, we always pay a lot of attention to protecting the privacy of that type of information. So, so you know, like very early in the process, you start thinking about, wow, who knows more about where you go and when you go there than your car? Um, because you go there in your car, right? So it knows that you like McDonald's and not Burger King. Um, or it knows that you stop shop at Lucky and not Safeway. Um, it knows that you use specific type of gas. It knows where you worship, where your kids go to school. It's little, excuse me. We thought that, you know, in, in an era where this type of data about what you do, <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, where the type of data about what you do can be monetized, we thought there should be some disclosure to the occupants of a vehicle about what, what, that, is, what that data is. And, and so that's why we wanted to uh, require a disclosure 
to a person what what information <clears throat> is being collected by the car that's not necessary for the safe operation of the car you know like that's not necessary uh, for the route that it's going to drive or things like that so do you think that, i mean you just mentioned a whole lot of sort of personal information um about where people go during their day um, do you think that location and trip data, like, you know, where you go and what route and where you stop, is that necessary for the safe operation of the vehicle? I mean, I, I could certainly see an argument that obviously the, uh, that location is something that's, that's very necessary that the, the vehicle is, you know, geolocating itself as part of how it drives. And so I'm just wondering whether, in your view, the location and trip data, where you went, where you stopped, is that information that we should think about um, as being necessary for the safe operation of the vehicle? Or is it going to be personal information that, that we would have to get a disclosure about? Well, I mean, if you think about it, what's, it it's how the vehicle's operating on the streets is going to be necessary for the safe operation of the vehicle, not... Specifically, you went to um, <clears throat> a fish store, right. you know, um, as opposed to you went to the corner of Fifth and Main. <clears throat> yeah. So, so my point on that is, um, we want the companies to disclose, you know, whatever whatever it is about where you go in a vehicle. That's not necessary for how the vehicle. Um, drives you to where you're going. If it's not if it's not related to how the car gets you from point A to point B safely, then there should be some disclosure of what information it's collecting about what you're doing, what you that person is doing that may somehow be used for other purposes. And it's just it's just a disclosure mechanism so that people can feel comfortable about what information is being used. Right. So they have to either disclose what information is collected and how it will be used, or they can just anonymize all the information. Anonymize it, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's the other concept, because then, then you know, if, you, if, if it's not traced back to me personally, then, then um, uh, as long as it, 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 it protects my privacy, so to speak, um, that would be one of the, the ways of, of addressing the, the information privacy issue. Right. All right. Another element, we're almost done here. Another uh, kind of unique element of the, the California rules is the advertising restriction around kind of calling a car autonomous or, or something similar, unless it actually is a level three, four or five vehicle. Can you tell us the genesis of this rule and, and how you expect it to work? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of, of really good um, driver assistance systems that are getting out there right now. And with a lot of this discussion about autonomous vehicles, you start getting worried about the over-reliance on a system to do more than it can. So, so if you're going to get out there and you're going you're gonna to advertise, and advertise under California law, the way we re regulate manufacturers, dealers, and salespeople is it can even be a statement by a salesperson but if you're going to tell the public our car can drive autonomously, we want the public to be assured that, that it actually can so that it is either, you know, as under the SAE system of levels, it is a level three, four, or five, and not just one of these vehicles that has, a lot, you know, great driver assistance systems that it doesn't lull you into the sense that I can, I can sit back and read the newspaper because this car, they, they've told me this car can drive itself. And if the car can't, you can imagine what a safety hazard that would be. Well, I think the big question there is how do we get this to apply to everyone on Twitter as well? So they'll stop referring to assisted driving technology as autonomous cars. <laughs> you know, it, it does become confusing. And, and, and it does, like as a manufacturer says, and we've seen a lot of reports in the media. We get contacted by the media because a manufacturer may be doing something and it says, we're testing this self-driving technology and they're talking about something that's truly level two. Yeah. And so what always happens to us is the media comes to us and says, does this company have a permit? <laughs> and then when you delve into it, it's like, well, no, they're just testing 
adaptive cruise control and lane keep under mm-hmm. the statutory definition of what's autonomous, that's not autonomous. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of confusion around it. So uh, I guess. And, the... and that's, that was that that advertising prohibition was was one of our mechanisms that fit within our authority of what we could do to address that type of a safety issue. Right. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Really, really appreciate all the information you've provided with the the details about the new regulations. And uh, I'm sure we'll we'll see how it all gets implemented here uh, starting in April. Yes. In in the next few days, we should have some idea of of who's going to be the first to come in and, and seek a permit and you know, actually starting on this, this path towards, um, you know, the, the, the driverless future that we've heard about. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks again to Brian for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.